Well, good evening and welcome back. I kind of didn't want that to end. It was pretty fun, Mike. I appreciate you doing that. And it's good to jog our minds with some of those things and some of the lessons from those chapters that we didn't talk about that still came rushing to mind, right? And so that's why we do that. I had a professor at Bible school who used to tell us when you're teaching, don't worry about repeating it. Repetition is theological glue. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's probably not theologically correct, but practically speaking, repeating it and repeating it is what helps it to stick, and it really does. Well, welcome back. We, uh, we do want to take a look again at Jacob. Uh, <clears throat> very, very interesting. I mean, <laughs> you don't have to go to Hollywood to find intrigue and espionage and treachery <laughs> or any of those things to keep your mind engaged in, in, uh, in some serious things, right? Uh, they do it for fun, but uh, this is real life, but for our benefit. And we just pray that uh, the Lord will help us to benefit from it. Let, why don't we just pause for a moment before we get into the Word of God and pray again and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we had of what you have revealed to us in your word. We do thank you for the holy word of God. You have spoken and revealed yourself to us. And not just things about yourself, but things about us. And about those who've gone before us that we need to hear. We need to be able to see what human nature is like. And Lord, you want us to know these things, first of all, so that we can have an accurate recounting of history but also so that we cannot become too puffed up in ourselves as we see a reflection of ourselves in these people who've gone before. The same struggles that they had, we have, both within ourselves and in the circumstances around us. And so just as you intervened in their lives, we thank you that you have intervened in ours. You've intervened in history by sending your son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to redeem us, and we thank you. We do pray, Lord, that even the little ones here who are too young to comprehend these things, that you would already be stirring in their hearts and planting the seeds that will sprout and bear fruit into salvation and into holy lives of service. And not just service, but of love and devotion to you. We just thank you for this time again this evening, for guiding us all here in safety. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed prepare our hearts to hear from you and that, that you would cause these things that we discuss this evening to to be a help to us in the journey of our own lives in this, in this day and age today. We thank you for being here with us, for the, your promised presence, as well as your protection and provision that you s still so faithfully provide. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so for the... I believe, I don't know, I think most people were here this morning, but for those who might not have been, we took a look at uh, Genesis chapter 31, and the two main things we looked at were uh, the decision-making process for Jacob, how he had been in this land of Padan Aram in the house of his father-in-law Laban for now 20 years. And um, he had wanted to leave before, but he did not have personal provisions to sustain his house and God provided for him. And it was, you know, you could ask the question, chapter 30 spent great pains in talking about these weird tricks that, that Jacob tried in order to cause these flocks to produce in a way that would be congruent with the, the wages his employer was currently 
bargaining with him uh, in regards. But um, you know, we now know from science that these things really don't make any difference, right? It was truly God that had stepped into his life and provided for him. Uh, all these tricks of putting, you know, striping these rods and putting them in front of them when they made it and all that. Um, it might have been his own attempts, but it was God. God revealed to him in chapter 31, I have helped these rams to produce the offspring that would be in, in, uh, in accordance with what your uh, father-in-law was uh, saying would be yours, and I have prospered you. And then he was able to leave when these four markers lined up, pointing, now's the time, right? His desire, circumstances, the word of God, and counsel. Um, and he stepped out and uh, left to go back to his homeland. And Laban followed after him, but the Lord intervened. And uh, they parted ways, suspicious of one another, but in peace, uh, as God watched over them to keep them from harming one another. Well, if we go down to chapter 32, let's, let's take up right there, and we'll read the chapter, and then I'll come back and take a look at it in a little bit of detail. Genesis chapter 32. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which literally means two hosts or two bands. And then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, for those of you who may be map people, I forgot to draw one out for you to see. Uh, the nation of Israel is this sliver of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the desert, and it has the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea down here, and Egypt is down here below the Mediterranean Sea. The land of Seir, where, Edom, where, where Esau lived, was south of, in the bottom part of the Dead Sea down there. Uh, and so, really, Jacob is returning from Mesopotamia, where the rivers run up here, Tigris and Euphrates, and he's coming back down around the... Um, uh, top of the desert right and he's now coming back into the mountains of gilead and he's descending into the the land of canaan but he sent messengers all the way down to seir to tell esau that he's coming back to the country of edom okay verse four and he commanded them saying speak thus to my lord esau thus your servant jacob says i've dwelt with laban and stayed there until now and i have oxen donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I've sent the, to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels, into two companies, and he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord, the Lord who spoke to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. 
For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. And then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between the successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong? And, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. And so he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him. But he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he, he that is the man, touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him and he said let me go for the day breaks but he said I will not let you go unless you bless me and so he said to him what is your name and he said Jacob and he said your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed then Jacob asked saying tell me your name I pray and he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I, have seen the fa for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day, the children of Israel did not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Well, may God bless the reading of his word. We want to come back and hopefully touch on 33 and 34, maybe even 35 a little bit, but <clears throat> let's take a look at this chapter. Jacob is now on his way and he's discovering this problem. Yes, he sent messages to Esau, but the message that comes back is that Esau is coming. That might have been okay, but then he says, and he has 400 men with him. And now Jacob has a problem. Is he coming as a friend? Or is he coming as a foe? The whole reason Jacob ran away is because Esau was comforting himself with this thought that as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob for what he's done to me. And it's interesting. We're going to learn a little bit about Jacob's name and how it was changed in this chapter. But if you look back to chapter 27 where Jacob went and deceived his father to steal Esau's blessing for himself. If you remember when uh, 
<clears throat> the boys were born and they were given their names. Jacob and Esau. Esau got his name because he was hairy and red. And um, uh, uh, when Jacob came out, he was holding on to the heel of his brother. And so uh, they called him a supplanter, the one who tries to, to trip up someone else so he can step in their place. And so when, when chapter 27 comes along and, and he steals the blessing, the question that, that Esau vents <clears throat> as uh, he finds that there is no other blessing for himself, uh, verse 35, Isaac says, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightfully named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times, took away my birthright, and now look, he's taken away my blessing. And uh, there was no blessing reserved for him. And so he, 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 he attributed not just this is his name, but this is his character. He's a deceiver. He's a supplanter. He's a schemer. And now he's schemed, and he was, he was extremely angry and, and, and plotted to kill him so here comes Esau 400 men and now Jacob doesn't know what to do but notice again uh, <clears throat> there's, there's two things to note as we go through this you see what's happening on the surface in Jacob's mind and life but then what God is doing what did God do to try to comfort Jacob knowing that this was coming verse 1 and 2 he's on his way and he sees the angels of God to meet him God's presence and God's protection was really part of what God was doing by showing him these angels. And you know, God says there are angels today who, whose sole purpose is to minister to God's people. And we don't know all that they're doing. Of course, we don't put our trust in angels, do we? We put our trust in God. But, but the servants of God who minister before him, the angels, he sends out on our behalf. And it should be a comfort to us to know that God is looking out for us and working actively even through angels sometimes, to be able to, 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 uh, to minister to us and to help us. Well, here we are, and it says in verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And, you know, if he had a better relationship with the Lord, perhaps he could have comforted himself in the Word of God and his relationship with God and found something there. But he really was still just beginning this walk with God himself, if you ask me. And, and he's very weak in his own personal faith, and so uh, he's greatly distressed. And... Um, He's not sure what to do. He divides his people in two. And so he begins formulating this plan. But before he even gets to this plan and really starts to develop it, I like what he does starting in verse 9. He prays. And we can learn something from this prayer. But before I get into the prayer, I, just, I remembered I wanted to just say something. This is a principle we see in Scripture and we see it in our lives as well. This unsettled injury with Esau. Neither distance nor time healed that unsettled injury his conscience was reawakened exactly where it had left off 20 years before because it had not been set right you know it's easy for us to try to avoid conflict and resolute it, it, it's work to bring reconciliation in relationships it takes work in our marriages. It takes work with our children. It takes work with our extended family. It takes work with our employers. And we see all these coming together in the life of Jacob. But it doesn't just go away. We can avoid dealing with it by pretending it's not there. We can avoid dealing with it by running away. But look at this. 20 years later, 
And the message is simply, Esau's coming to meet you and he's got 400 men with him. And where does his mind go? Terror, fear, because he never dealt with it. Doesn't the same thing happen later on in Joseph's life? 15 plus years after they sold Joseph into slavery. And this man who they don't even know who it is takes one of them, accuses them of spies and, he put, and, and, and they're put in prison and J- Joseph is listening. And what do they say? This is because of what we did to Joseph. Where did that come from? But their conscience, the conscience God gave us is meant to help us. And by avoiding it, we do harm to ourselves. We do harm to our relationships. And so finally, God is bringing Jacob to a place of dealing with these things. And praise God, it brings resolution. But how does he bring it to that point? First of all, he's terrified. He begins to start scheming and he's like, okay, well, let me put him in two different camps. If he attacks the one, the other will escape. And finally, he just stops. And here's the lesson for you and I. He prays. Where does he begin to pray? Verse 9, he says, Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the one who said to me, return to your country and I will deal well with you. He's reminding himself and he's recounting before the presence of the Lord who God is. Isn't that what we do when we worship the Lord? We're not telling him anything new. We're simply exalting him and his character in our midst. And the Lord says that that's a sweet-smelling aroma to him. It's part of our worship to lift up his name. The Bible says he inhabits the praise of his people. And so this is a great example of how to begin our own prayers as we come together, to, li- to remind ourselves of who God is, to, 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 to adjust our frame of reference towards life by first of all focusing on the Lord and on his promises, right? He says, Lord, you were the one who told me Come back to your country and your family and I will deal well with you. And here comes Esau, right? But as always happens, when we truly focus on the Lord, just like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up on the altar, what does he say? Woe is me for I am undone. We get a true picture of ourselves too, right? And in verse 10 he says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. When I crossed over this Jordan, going the other direction, all I had was my staff. And now look, I'm coming back and I'm two whole companies of not only people, but flocks, wealth. I'm not worthy of these mercies you've given me. And there's confession on his part. There's a humbling of himself before God. And then he finally comes to it. He says, you if that's going to be true, Lord, you can't let us just get wiped out. He's, he's reminding himself, he's reminding God of the promises that God had given so that he could stand on them, so that he could have something to hold on to as he cried out to the Lord for confidence to rest on the promises of God. And so, um, good example for us, isn't it? Very similar to that thing we teach people sometimes, the ACTS, Acts, Model for Praying, Adoration, Worship, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Now, the Thanksgiving is only hinted at here, but I believe that's a very powerful part of our prayers, and I, I think we'd be my transformation of my mindset. I encourage you with that as well as we consider this prayer offered up in the midst of his distress and fear over confronting his brother Esau. Well, he's done praying, and it says, as he sat there, he lodged, verse 13, there that night, and he took what came to his hand. I don't know what that means. I don't know whether he started walking through the camp and figured, well, we'll take some of this, and he started, but either way, he started, but he says, he commanded them, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when when you find him, in verse 20, 
Also say, behold, your servant Jacob's behind us. For, for here's what he gives us his mindset. For he said to himself, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face and perhaps he will accept me. And so he sends the present on before him. But then he's there that night and he, he, he sends his wives and children across. And finally, he's left alone by himself there He's right by the River Jordan. The Jabbok River there comes off the Jordan River and he's going into the land of Canaan. It's the last step before he's there in that land that he's returning to to go meet Esau. And he's left alone. I'm going to come back to the idea of the present as he approached Esau, but let's just move ahead to, to verse 24. Jacob was feeling this aloneness by himself on the side of the river. It says, while he was there, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, I don't know at what point Jacob realizes who this is. But we understand as we look back today, right, this was the Lord appearing in human form to meet Jacob. Um, and we, we see that in the verses we already read at the end of this chapter. But this process of Jacob wrestling with God is such a powerful imagery for us to learn from. And I've had to ask myself, and maybe you've asked this question. If you've got some more dialogue on it, I'd like to hear about it. But I had to ask myself, when did Jacob find his conversion? Was he considered righteous by God back in chapter 28 when he made this vow to God in Bethel when he saw the vision where the angels were ascending and descending and realized this is the house of God and he set up that pillar and, and God made this promise to him of his presence and his protection and his provision and, and, and in response it says that, that Jacob took a vow and said since the Lord if we're since I'm not sure what's the best translation for that because in the one hand, you could say, well, he could be saying, if the Lord will really do this for me and, and take care of me and bring me back to my brethren in peace, then he will be my God. And he's putting it off until this time here where he's going to have a confrontation with God again. Or is he expressing faith and saying, since God has promised to do this, then he will be my God. And I, this will be the house of God and I will give him a tenth of all that I make. I don't know that I, I don't have any resolved decision on that. I can see hints either way. Certainly, we see this um, side. You know, can I just talk about some some of the things that that, that the Lord struck me with as I try to wrestle with this question? Um, well, no, let me finish this story first. And then I have two, two thoughts that I'd like to share. Okay, What happens here? As he's here in chapter 32, wrestling with God, it says this man wrestled with him. And the day was dawning. It, it says when he saw, when the man, God, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he, the man, touched Jacob in the socket of his hip. And Jacob's hip went out of joint as he wrestled with the man. So first of all, notice it. We see Jacob wrestling, contending with God. What a picture of Jacob's whole life. 
right? From the very youth, he was fighting against everyone around him. From Esau, stealing, deceiving his parents. He's contended with Laban. He, he's, he's, he's still finding himself out of sorts with Esau, wondering what to do. But, but he's now, now he's just plain out wrestling with God straight out. But what does God do? God touches him and puts his socket out of joint. And then that very next sentence says that the man said to Jacob after he touched his joint and put it out of socket, it says, let me go for the day breaks. And this man who was once contending with God, it says now he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now he is clinging to God. That's a beautiful picture of conversion, even if it was just a recommitment or a, a consecration where he dedicates his life to the Lord. But this is what we all need to come to, right? Rather than contending with God, clinging to God, realizing our weakness. And when he could no longer really wrestle to win, he just hung on to God. And as he did, he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so the man turned to him and said, what is your name? And here it is. He had to confess my name is Jacob, a supplanter, a deceiver, a troubler. It's who I am. But he hung on. And what's God's response? He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. And uh, his name has the idea, I, I understand, of having one with God strives or, or striving with God. But... God recognizes his, 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 uh, 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 the motive of his heart now to just to cling, to hold on to, to do what's right before God. And he came to the end of himself. And so God changes his name and sets him on a whole new path. And uh, he says, Your name shall not be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. But he didn't prevail by continuing to strive. He prevailed by giving it up, confessing who he was and clinging to God for his mercy. And um, when you compare that with what he's trying to do with Esau, right? He's doing exactly what most people try to do to come before God. Send him some presents, just like Cain. I get the best crops that I can get and offer them up and hope that it will appease God. But it doesn't, does it? Right? And it's interesting because he uses this word to appease him, verse 20, and it's the same word, kafar, atonement, that we find through the Bible that, that is this whole idea of the covering for sin. The, uh, 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 the whole idea of atonement is covering. But how does God cover sin? With a sacrifice. Right? Cain's offering was not acceptable because God's way required the sacrifice of a sinless substitute in order to bring restoration and reconciliation between those two parties who were not at peace. And Abel, understanding that, accepting God's way by faith, he presented that lamb and he was accepted by God, right? So, so here's Jacob. His whole mentality is try to just give presents to appease people in your own efforts and hopefully... He'll accept me. But there is no hopefully when God comes into the picture. The, we can know that we are accepted because Jesus 
sacrifice was accepted for you and for me. As soon as we put our faith in Him, He forgives us and He he can accept us. But we have to stop contending, striving on our own, and cling to His promise for mercy. Beautiful picture. But this is the changing point in Jacob's experience. And he goes away, a new man, a blessed man. Jacob asks, saying, well, now tell me your name. (laughs) And the Lord doesn't tell him here. He says, why are you asking? But then he blesses Jacob. And so Jacob now, he calls the name of this place Peniel, which I understand has the translation of being the face of God. He says, I've been here. I've seen the face of God. And yet I've prevailed. I'm I'm still alive. He's given me mercy. And so um, now with that as the backdrop, he's left the next morning to going to face Esau. Now he's finally ready. Two thoughts about this whole idea of uh, Jacob's conversion. One has to do with the idea of a vow. And you know, Romans chapter 12 is a verse we often challenge one another with when it comes to those who are believers really just giving their lives wholeheartedly to the Lord. And the reason that's a good passage for that is because the tense of the verb there is a one-time, once-for-all thing. Where, God, where, where we are challenged in view of the mercies of God to present our bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. It's the only reasonable response to what we see Christ has done for us. But when he says to offer yourselves to God as this sacrifice, it's, it's not something that we just, well, I did that. and you know, It's a one-time thing that God asks us to do. Give yourself to me. Commit to following me. Offer your life to me. And um, sometimes that happens immediately with salvation. For others of us, our full giving it up, like Jacob did, comes later. So it's, it's two different works that God does, sometimes very immediate, sometimes a little bit lagged, but it's a work that he's trying to do in our lives. And so when I look at Jacob and the vow that he made when he was first there at Bethel, here's what impresses me about that. Even for a wayward man like Jacob, What does God do with that vow? How does he view it? The thing that impresses me here is that it's not Jacob who appeals to God saying, you remember when I made that vow to you? I want you to please remember me and come back and help me because I've wandered away from you. No. In Jacob's distress, he made that vow to God. And it's here in chapter 30... When God is speaking to him in Padanaram, he says, I'm the God of Bethel where you anointed that pillar and made a vow to me. Now you get up and come back to your land and I'll be with you. God says, I remember that vow. Maybe you forgot about it, but I haven't. And I'm holding you to it. It's still valid. After 20 years of piddling and failing in his life, God still holds that vow valid. Now look at my life. How many times have I stumbled and seemed to go off in wayward directions? And, and, but the commitment of our heart and life to the Lord, He takes seriously and He remembers and He doesn't give up on it. That's an encouragement to me. I remember the day, January 21, 1987, I said, this is it, Lord. I don't care where you want to send me. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but here's my life. It's here, the other side of the world. If it's dumping garbage cans or 
plumbing or teaching the word of God or mission field or youth ministry or whatever it is, I don't, I'm yours. Have I lived a perfect example since then? Ooh, by far. But the Lord has held me accountable to that. I was telling someone just the other day, the people I worked with, they couldn't give two hoots about God. And they park their park, their cars in that loading zone, leaving it there way over time. They don't feed the meters. Sometimes they get tickets, sometimes they don't. But I observed something in my history at that employment place that I worked. Every single time I chose to allow my meter to run out, even for five minutes, and I said, well, I'm leaving in five minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll just get my car then. I got a ticket every time. Every time. Now, there were times where I said, oh, no, I'm 20 minutes. I'm a half hour over my meter, and I ran out to put the money in. Oh, hey, no ticket. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, how is it that I get a ticket every time they don't? And the Lord said, you're my child. You have committed your life to me, and I'm training you, and I want you to trust me and to be obedient. Be a testimony like you're supposed to be in this world. You're the salt and light, and I'm holding you accountable. That was an important lesson for me. God doesn't forget. We struggle, we slip. But the Lord's there. His presence, His protection, His provision is always there. And He keeps that record. He keeps with us in our commitments to Him. Now, that's a scary thing, isn't it? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, be careful what you speak before God. You take a vow before God, you pay it. You make sure you pay it. Don't come back around saying, Lord, I didn't really know what I was saying. And, uh, that, what, 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 don't, don't speak a fool speech. God takes it seriously. And Deuteronomy 23, I think it's verses 21 through 24, goes into even further detail. It says, listen, if you make a vow to God and you don't perform it, it's a sin to you. You took that vow voluntarily. If you didn't take the vow, it wouldn't be sin. But you have committed yourself to something before God. God takes it that seriously. And he wants us to. But he helps us, doesn't he? He's helping Jacob. And um, um, I, I've, in re more recent days, read of people who, who make it a point to, to take vows before the Lord. I've been very hesitant to take vows because I, I know my feebleness and I, I'm a, I don't want to d disappoint the Lord. But, but the Lord wants us to take steps forward. And he calls us to decisions. And he wants us to take that step. Praise God, Jacob was now learning to respond. And God didn't give up on him. And here he is clinging to the Lord and he finds mercy. Interesting about vows. Um, sometimes I hate time. <laughs> it goes so fast. Let me just say this about Esau. Praise God. In chapter 33, Jacob goes and he goes to meet Esau. And you know, with all of his weird antics, separating his wives and children and sending them all off before. And, and finally, when he comes to Esau, notice verse, um, verse 8. This is chapter 33 of Genesis, verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I've met? And he said, well, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. 
And Jacob said, No, 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 please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. And as much as I have seen your face, as though I have seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me, please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And so he urged Esau, and he took it. And Esau said, Let's, let's take our journey, let's go, and I will, be, I will go before you. But Jacob said, Oh, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing with me. If the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. You know, all this fear that he had about Esau. Look what God did. He did a work in the heart of Esau to give him what appears to me to be genuine forgiveness. Did he deserve it? No. And all this trying to appease him, Esau wasn't interested in that. He said, look, I've got enough. Keep it for yourself. God's blessed you with that. That's fine. Let's go together. But Jacob, he didn't, I don't think he trusted him yet. And so he had trouble receiving that. And so finally he urged his brother. I'm thankful that, that his brother took it as a sign of good, um, um, a goodwill towards his brother. You know, I had a friend one time that that had done a lot for me in a time when I had nothing in my life. And, and um, I remember I finally was able to make some money. And I said, I'm going to take my friend out and say thank you and, and bless him. And uh, he wouldn't receive my gift. It broke my heart. You know, all the times that he blessed me and he wouldn't receive my gift. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes we give Esau a terrible, terrible rap. But I see some good things in Esau here. He was willing to forgive his brother. And he, he received the gift reluctantly. But, you know, his brother's urging him and urging him. Okay, let's go, you know. And, but, but Jacob wouldn't even receive his company going back. And um, I don't know what kind of relationship they had. It doesn't seem they spent much time together after that. But uh, Jacob went. And I like this part. If we just end chapter 33, notice... He goes to this land called Shechem, and in verse 19 it says, He bought a parcel of land, and he pitched his tent, and this is going to sound a lot like Abraham, he pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for, oh, I'm sorry, he bought the parcel of land where he pitched his tent for 100 pieces of money, and then he erected an altar. And there he called it El Elohe Israel. I like this. He called it God, the God of Israel. You see something different here? The first time he came to Bethel, he said, oh, this is the house of God. His name's been changed. He didn't just say, it's... Uh, his focus now is on God himself. Not just his blessings, not just his protection, but on God himself. The same thing can be found if you look ahead to Bethel. Oh, I think I underlined it in my chapter here. Ah, <clears throat> uh, Yes. This is chapter 35. God finally directs him back to that very place in Bethel. He had a disastrous experience in Shechem in chapter 34. And when it's done, he's shamed before the community and he's afraid they're going to attack him. And God comes to him in chapter 35 and says, Listen, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God. But he doesn't go back and just dwell there in Bethel. Verse 7 tells me this. It says, He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, the God of the house of God. He's a changed man. Got a long way to go, but he's a changed man. 
turmoil in his house. The chapter we didn't get to look at, chapter 34, deceit runs through and through, not just in himself, but now his children have picked up on this trait. The one topic I, I wanted us to look at today and I didn't get to is this idea of what we pass on to those who come behind us. Isaac, there was favoritism between his two brothers. And his mother is the one who coached Jacob to deceive Isaac that Jacob could get that blessing. Jacob learned his deceitfulness from his mother. But Laban was his mother's brother. So Laban and Rebekah learned it in the same household when they were young. And so when Jacob goes to work for Laban, here's two of the same stock trying to out-deceive each other for 20 years. But what happens when he leaves town? Rachel steals the household idols from her father and she hides them in her saddle and deceives her father to making him think that she didn't take them. And it goes on. Here are their children now, deceiving the men of Shechem in order to do them harm. And so we need to be careful. Jacob is a new man, learning a new life, but he's still reaping the results of what he has sown throughout his whole lifetime. We can choose our sins, but we can't choose the consequences for them. And uh, we just have to come plead, cling to God for His mercies. Plead for His blessing. And seek to follow Him. Well, there's so much more here, I know. But uh, praise God. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we've been able to glean something, I hope, from what we've already looked at. And may God help us to put it into practice. So, Father, as we end our time here together this evening, we thank you again for your word. And I, I thank you for the patience of these dear saints as we've lingered a little long this evening considering these things. Help us to take them to heart. Lord, as I look at my own family, I realize I don't want my children to learn from my weaknesses and adapt ungodly practices and habits for their own lives but I want them to learn to follow you. Help me, help all of us as, as the family of God to pour out ourselves, to cling to you, to, to be able to receive that blessing, to empty ourselves of the old man that you might conform us to the image of Christ. He truly is the perfect picture, the perfect servant, the perfect son, and our perfect savior. We thank you so much for him. We commit ourselves to your care for the remainder of this evening for the week as we go our separate ways help us to truly be the light and salt of this world for your sake we pray in jesus name amen